You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everybody. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers, I'd like to welcome you to another installment of City Lights Live, our virtual reading series. I'm your host, Peter Maravellis, and tonight we are delighted to have back in the house Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Beacon Press and City Lights are celebrating a milestone moment in the publication of the 10th anniversary edition of the groundbreaking and New York Times best-selling book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. This being Indigenous People's Day, I can't think of a better book to be celebrating. And now, of course, I'd like to acknowledge that we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral homelands of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We would like to take this moment to offer respect to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Numerous dialects were spoken along this peninsula. I know that many of you are watching from across the country and some from across the world. I would like to take a second to encourage you to get to know those who are indigenous to your area if you haven't already. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's work is legendary amongst activist communities and the international indigenous movement. Her writings and scholarship have also made an impression upon a larger audience, having made it to the New York Times bestseller list. And of course, she is no stranger to City Lights, as we have the honor and distinct pleasure of publishing her book called Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. She has given many talks at City Lights over the years. So for us, this is really, truly something of a homecoming. Uh, For more than four decades, Roxanne is known for her lifelong commitment to national and international social justice issues. She's the author and editor of many books, including Not a Nation of Immigrants, Blood on the Border, Red Dirt, Growing Up Oki, amongst others. She is the recipient of the Cultural Freedom Prize from the Lifetime Achievement of the Lannan Foundation. An Indigenous People's History of the United States won the 2015 Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Award for Excellence in Literature. And now this new edition from Beacon Press A new generation is able to experience this important work, offering a history of the United States as told from the perspective of indigenous peoples. And I love the fact that it's a hardcover because I have just torn apart my soft cover and I had to like tape it together. So having a hardcover for this kind of a book is fabulous. I'm so happy that they produced this really beautiful edition. Joining Roxanne in conversation this evening, we are honored to have with us Manu Karuko Vimalaseri. And please, Correct me if I got the the name wrong. Um, He is the author of Empire's Tracks, Indigenous Nations, Chinese Workers, and the Transcontinental Railroad. He is also the co-editor of On Colonial Unknowing, a special issue of Theory and Event, as well as co-editor of The Sun Never Sets, South Asian Migrants in an Age of U.S. Power. His work appears in Critical Ethnic Studies, J-19, Settler Colonial Studies, amongst other publications. He is a member of the Council for Collaborative Inquiry and an Assistant Professor of American Studies at Barnard College. Before we begin, I would like to remind you that we will be posting links in the chat function of your Zoom dashboard with which you may purchase books. Uh, And also we'll be featuring a QA and a at the end of the talk. So please do post your questions in that same chat function. Uh, I encourage you all to switch to speaker view. You may do that on the upper right-hand corner of your dashboard, just to give you a very nice clean transition between person speaking. So join us now in offering a very warm welcome to Roxanne and Manu. Such an honor to have you both with us tonight. Welcome to City Lights. 
Thanks so much. Um, I'm really honored to be speaking here with City Lights, one of the great bookstores in the world. Um, and here in conversation with my, my teacher and mentor and friend, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and the celebration of this new beautiful edition of the Indigenous People's History of the United States, um, which I encourage all of you to, to run out and get your, your hardcover copy of. Um, there's new material in this new edition. Um, so even if you have the original, go and get a copy of, of this new one. Um, so we are, of course, meeting today on the occasion of Indigenous Peoples History Day, um, and also the, the less auspicious occasion of Columbus Day, or as they call it in New York now, Italian American Heritage Day. Um, and then also we've, uh, all of us have been taking in the news from Gaza and Palestine. And so these, uh, these contexts shape the conversation that Roxanne and I, um, uh, wanted to have this evening, um, drawing out some themes from the book. And Roxanne, the, the first theme that uh, we had talked about, um, to think about the moment that we're in now um, and that we've been following for the past few days, lessons from, from this book and from your body of work more broadly, um, lessons on the long and unbroken tradition and history of indigenous resistance and indigenous struggle in North America. Um, and this goes uh, all the way from your, your first book on the long history of anti-colonial resistance in New Mexico uh, to your most recent work. So I wanted to begin by just offering the floor to you to um, draw out some, some core lessons um, that we can take to understand the moment that we're in. Well, it's an interesting moment and an interesting day uh, today when um, we see Palestinians, colonized people rising up and <clears throat> so much accusations of, um, of um, violence on the part of the, of the um, uh, Palestinians, at least in the US media. And uh, yes, it, it has made me think all the past few days about how that those same accusations, if you go back and read the old newspapers from the 19th century in the United States, they're filled with horror stories about the, the wild uh, savages, the Indians who are killing the, the settlers. Of course, the settlers are taking their lands and they're fighting back. And uh, so set, settler colonialism is still alive, you know, it is not uh, still alive in the United States because the the reservations and not all native people have even one inch of land uh, restored to them, especially in California and uh, the East Coast um, and um, the broken treaties and so forth. So this is, this is not just history. Um, People always get bored with history. Oh, well, that's the past. But it's really the history is the, is the presence. And I think that's what's um, difficult to get over to people about um, Native Americans in the United States. 
they're written off as um, a um, uh, lesser people, almost like, you know, this white nationalism, a lesser breed as the way African Americans are treated, a lesser breed of human, a kind of uh, not completely human. So anything can be done to them, you know, anything um, that they have no rights. So this, um, this is, I, I see, you know, playing off 24 seven right now with Palestine, some of the same rhetoric and language coming out of, you know, reporters from the New York Times and, and um, CBS and NBC, uh, not, not usual white nationalists, but they too are chiming in, it seems to be a uh, almost total um, a voice, you know, of uh, one way. I heard one Palestinian being interviewed on the news, and I've been kind of watching, uh, obsessed with watching all of this and my waking hours too much. And uh, I've only seen one uh, Rashid uh, Khalidi being interviewed by Di uh, Amy Goodman, you know, and I highly recommend watching that. That was uh, uh, today, uh, and um, on Democracy Now. So um, I think this, you know, the book coming out at this time, the tenth anniversary book. Um, the book has sold. By the way, the book has sold very well. It's a bestseller in the New York Times a surprise to us um, to be compressed. They usually expect a kind of mid-shelf, as they call it, you know, mid-shelf sales, not not to um, boom sales. But so it's, it has sold um, uh, solidly. And I was wondering, well, why do we need a 10th anniversary edition uh, when it's selling so well? But I really get it because um, it brings it to a new audience that may not have seen it before because it's been nine years, well, you know, 10 years, it's 10th anniversary. It's a whole new generation that probably hadn't noticed the book um, and uh, teachers and also, and, you know, we do have Ralph Peck contributed a, a uh, uh, a preface to the book, um, he had uh, used it for his four-part HBO series, uh, Exterminate All the Brutes, which I recommend that you watch on HBO. And um, and I have a new introduction that later I'll read a little bit from. Um, yeah, so it's... Um, it's very interesting to see settler colonialism, you know, this kind of resistance in Palestine right now that is being so condemned for, for violence, violence against the colonizer, that it echoes, you know, it really echoes in the uh, vilification of Native Americans as the enemy. So I want to get to the question of the settler reaction in a moment. But um, before doing that, I wanted to ask you um, maybe to draw out some more instances or, you know, concrete moments in the history of resistance that if 
people in North America watching the news knew the history of this continent better, we would have a better, we would be better placed to understand the resistance of Palestinians uh, in Gaza and beyond. Um, one moment that comes to mind for me is the Dakota uprising, um, which right. happened during the Civil War. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the catalyst that led to the uprising and the reaction on the part of the Americans, and then the historical amnesia uh, on the part of non-Native people about that uprising. So again, uh, if whether it's the Dakota ups, uprising, the, the earlier histories of the Pueblo revolts, which you've written about, um, I wanna invite you to, to tell us about specific instances of struggle and resistance that could help us here in North America based on the history of this land, better understand what's happening uh, in Gaza now. Yeah, you know, it really was a hundred years of um, unrelenting warfare on the part of the United States to take the continent. Uh, it began before that, that's the hundred years of after independence, uh, starting in 1780. Um, I mean, it was going on all the time during the revolutionary period. Um, and of course, the colonial era, um, it continued, but it, but it also had, uh, they had pretty well, by the time of the constitution, the settlers had, uh, and the settler governments, um, you know, the governors of the colonies that became then the, um, you know, president and, uh, you know, all of the officers of the revolution. Uh, mostly slave owners, by the way, um, that they had pretty well cleared, as they called it, cleared the 13 original colonies. And they immediately, during their revolution, started expanding into that still British-held um, territory. But the British weren't sending settlers there. Um, so it was still pretty much Indian, you know, regular Indian life controlled. And you mentioned the, the Dakotas, a famous um, uprising as they reached, uh, that's uh, Minnesota, the Minnesota Territory. It was a territory at the time, not a state. Um, but there were, you know, they, they had brought over Scandinavian settlers who were actually starving in their own homelands because of drought and failed crops. And um, they invited them. They sent petitions, you know, saying, welcome, you know, come, we have land for you. So they sent them out there without telling them it was inhabited, very, very densely inhabited with Dakota farmers. You know, they were agro agribusiness farmers with villages. And, you know, here they were, you know, uh, they had been given land grants. They had petitioned, you know, they, they had it in their hands. We own this real estate. So they had to, you know, they engaged in fighting and their, their heart wasn't very much into it. I think they had no idea they had to come and kill people in their villages, murder them, women, children, and men, 
in order to occupy the land that the, they were told that they owned. Um, so the this was the middle of the Civil War in 1863 that um, the uh, uh, Lincoln sent the army in to crush the Dakota revolt against these settlers. And it was a genocidal killing of, because these Dakota farmers were not, you know, um, they they were farmers. You know, I grew up, grew up as, in a farming family and farmers really like to protect their crops, you know, from various things that might, you know, but they really are not into killing people necessarily. They're not, um, you know, they're, I mean, I don't think anyone is. Uh, they have to be, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, trained uh, to to do that, to take other people's land. So they send in the troops and it was, um, they forced them out. Um, they uh, captured about 300 Dakotas and sentenced them all to uh, to hanging. And it did seem like, you know, a pretty big job, you know, to to hang 300 people. So they, <laughs> Lincoln reduced it to, I can't remember the number, 37, some odd number like that, but, you know, by a lot. And um, here were, you know, here were all the captives and they said, you know, um, 37 of you come up. So just arbitrarily, and some Dakotas I've heard tell jokes that um, that they hid behind the person in front of them so that they wouldn't have to go in, you know, joking. But they were very organized and they knew who would sacrifice themselves. So it was very orderly, but they hung them all, mass, the largest mass hanging, hanging in U.S. history. And the Dakotas moved over the, to Standing Rock. That's why Standing Rock is such a militant reservation. If you remember the Standing Rock uh, 2016, a long, long winter um, protest uh, for the um, pipeline going through their territory. They're very, you know, they're known to, to really be militant, and that's partly because the Dakota's um, sitting goal was um, was a descendant of, of the Dakota's. Um, so this was this uh, insistence on taking the continent. I think it's one thing that U.S. people have the hardest time. Uh, grasping is the intention of taking the continent when they when they um, made their war of independence because Britain was was uh, preventing them from expanding and they had already gone illegally up into Appalachia mountains. These Scots Irish settlers. Uh, 
my my uh, ancestors <laughs> with name Dunbar, they, and they were from Appalachia. They um, uh, they had gone, and you know they simply pushed these very peaceful farming Cherokees, pushed them out. You know, of course, the Cherokees organized and fought back, and um, um, so they they the British put a a, a line uh, on the eastern side of the of the Appalachians and said that all the British settlers had to return to the colony, the thirteen colonies. And that is the reason for this was eighteen sixty three, the proclamation. That was when Washington and the other the slaver um, uh, plantation owners uh, formed their revolutionary uh, for the independence of of the United States. And they wrote into their um, into their discussions their very first um, document before the Constitution was a, um, a mapping of taking the, the country to the Pacific coast and then on to China to take the Pacific. So they had that intention upon independence. And I think that's something that is so important and is not understood that that U.S. imperialism, you know, colonialism, people can kind of get that now, you know, get that word about the Indian. But imperialism, they say, oh, 1898, you know, that's when. No, the U.S. was founded also as an imperialist state. Yeah, I agree. And this is what I found in my own research, born out of my own research. Um, so in the book, you, on the one hand, draw this uh, long arc and tradition of indigenous resistance, anti-colonial struggle. And on the other hand, you you draw out this long arc of the U.S. warfare and invasion and the intense and unremitting violence. And you engage the... Uh, the thesis of the military historian John Grenier, um, and this aspect of the book was very uh, eye-opening for me, his thesis of the first wave of war. And Grenier argues right. that the United States had developed early on, even before 1776, a distinct way of fighting war that involved irregular troops who would attack the food sources and the homes of civilians. So it's right. total warfare, but in this very particular way. And in the book, you show how this pattern repeats consistently in the so-called euphemistically uh, Indian wars, these, these assaults on indigenous communities, indigenous villages across the continent. Um, and I think another lesson to draw um, from the book, and maybe to connect to the moment that we're in right now, is alongside this long and unbroken chain of warfare, and warfare that targets civilians and their food, um, the sense of settler reaction. Um, I think of it as almost like the folklore of settler colonialism, the, the idea of the victim, the settler is the victim. 
um, the panic. And of course, in the history of slavery, this is very familiar as well, the idea of the, the slaveholder who can't sleep at night um, because they're afraid of the, of the uprising that they expect to happen. Um, and this sense of settler victimization fuels and was repeatedly used to justify massacres of you know just the, a gen genocide of entire entire communities oftentimes actually people who were engaged in diplomacy and peace with the united states um, so i just wanted to open the floor to you to to respond and maybe think about this if if you agree with this kind of folklore of settler victimization yeah well taking that first um there certainly is this, and you hear it today, you know, this kind of whining on the part of the descendants of the of the original settlers. And that is mainly the white nationalists. There, there's some who are, say, Italian or Irish immigrants that are descendants of immigrants who, um, you know, who join in, but the, the basic core of uh, what Trump uh, really exposed to us you know who the people were and i know them because i grew up in rural oklahoma um in a all-white rural area um that they that they have this sense that they are that they are the as the original settlers they're the original people and that they are the ones that are um, are suffering because foreigners, you know, foreigners coming in, you know, not because of wars and, and capitalism and you know uh, um, uh, the uh, low income of most, you know, many of these people. I would say the majority are low income, have a hard time, you know, making it through a month. Um, so they blame that um, instead, you know, on well, black people and immigrants, immigrants taking jobs, black people um, uh, taking jobs and, um, and just and doing better on welfare, you know, of course, the these uh i don't know leftists who listen to you know so-called progressive country music are beginning to really annoy me <laughs> like finding something progressive in in these sad songs about how uh how they're suffering you know uh, as as poor white people and uh, the singers themselves are quite wealthy because these, you know, they make a lot of money off these songs. So anyway, um, yeah, there's, um, you know, that that definitely that uh, that settler anxiety. I think there's a kind of subconscious that of um, knowing the truth. You know, that that's a really um, incendiary thing. You know, when people have to overreact because they know it's uh, uh, that, that I think that the, there's some self-knowledge there that comes out as um, 
as anger and you know uh, self defense and uh, uh, yeah and and just feeling that they're they're being um, cheated somehow by the banks by the Jews by you know whatever black people um, anti semitism plays a big role in this you know in in uh, in these white nationalist groups. Uh, Jews as bankers, Jews as, you know, as, um, so, and, you know, that's kind of contradictory with their evangelical churches. They're very close to, you know, current day um, Israel Zionists, uh, which they don't quite identify as Jews, you know, because they're settlers. They're so similar because they're settlers. They have this sense of, of um, uh, affinity with them and they don't really think of them as as, as Jews. Uh, so they can contain, they can have at the same time their deep anti-Semitism and their pro-Israeli settler colonialism. It's interesting, you know, people have, have live with a lot of contradictions in their heads. And this is one one of the most dangerous. So the um uh, back to the Grenier, John Grenier, I really recommend people read that book. Um, it's uh, The American Way of War. So he ends the book in 1813. I say, Grenier, I have to write, finish this book for you, you know, which I pretty well do <laughs> in, the, um, uh, in my book, because it's, uh, it's just nothing like it. There's been no other book like that on colonial uh, colonial uh, America, the 13 colonies and the warfare. And what he does that is so important to understand US militarism today is that he says everything that was formed in that period of time from 1619, to um, 1813 is the was created the armed forces we have today their mentality the imperialism uh, the 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 um, paranoia of someone's always after us even though we have these two oceans on each side and two neutered countries. <laughs> you know, on the southern and northern border, uh, totally neutered. They don't, they don't in any way try to, Mexico tried, but, you know, lost half of its territory. Um, so it's, there has no real, you know, real fears that this is, this is, they still have this paranoia that they're going to be attacked all the time. They have to be alert, they have to keep a standing army, and they have to preempt it by occupying other places, and especially every island in the world, you know, for their, you know, we don't think very much about warships. There are warships lined up, again, over uh, in the Mediterranean right now, U.S. warship. Uh, they mobilize them very quickly. Warships, not just ships, all along the Gaza border, um, Mediterranean border. And 
they, you know, they, that was the way that they um, did their imperialism by building, uh, um, you know, building fueling stations on the islands, occupied islands. They had, you know, these were not, these were not without people, <laughs> uh, but they pretty much just gave them diseases or, you know, uh, just deported them, you know, like the, the Chagosians uh, that they deported uh, from their homelands that David Vine has written about. Um, that um, they they just rounded them up and deported them, and now it's a a military base, U.S. military base. So that you know that's the kind of imperialism after. But what gets left out is the colonization of the continent. You know that that that's kind of like okay, that's the expansion of the frontier. You know they have all these words for it, uh, it's expansion. Uh, that the indigenous people had um, were so few because of the, you know, the genocide of um, uh, the wars that you know the the um, uh, diseases that come from uh, from warfare uh, spread, you know, throughout. So there there was you know a, a definitely a reduction from you know 100 million to 10 million uh that that's pretty much what a genocide is but it doesn't mean that they disappeared or didn't fight back because they did you know across the whole continent and that is you know Grenier's point is that that is the formation of the u.s military today that in almost every case, he says, in every case, and he, he by the way, is an a Air Force uh, captain and a professor at the Air Force College in, um, in Colorado. Uh, it, it's a very strange thing that, you know, some of these insider military people <laughs> have all this knowledge. They learn at West Point in these places, you know, that... that they um the students know it the soldiers know it you know it's it's a it's an odd thing um how how this can all be done without totalitarianism this is the brilliance of the united states how to be a a totally um controlling of our the population itself and and the world without, you know, without uh, concentration camps and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a very, and they learned that in their, in their hundred years war against the Indians after independence. They found a way to do that and uh, because they did it here. So, yeah, well, that was a long answer to that. Well, I think it's it was a rich answer, and I'll, I think where you ended, uh, I want I just want to remind everyone who's watching that that um, Roxanne, your books Loaded and Not a Nation of Immigrants also discuss this question of white nationalism in in historical depth, but also in recent uh, more recent U.S. history and its relationship to what we're thinking about together as this kind of 
folklore of settler victimization or her anxiety. Um, but I know you had a, a passage from from the book that you wanted to read. Um, yes. Um, from the introduction, I, I'll read um, a short piece. I can find it here. Okay, there it is. So this is um, the early part of it. You know, it's a pretty brief introduction in the uh, new edition. And um, uh, I just wanted to, you know, I mainly just talked about the process of writing of the book, um, which might interest people as well. So you could call this book an Obama-era artifact. I researched and wrote it during the first five years of his presidency in the midst of hope that gradually faded into disappointment as the war machine grinded on. Any book is uh, at least partially a captive of the time in which it's written. And in the case of writing US history, the mystic chords of memory of the founding and the first century of the US conquest of the continent haunted the period of time when I was writing. Echoes of endless wars since the beginning that became the United States. As I began writing, I felt dismayed hearing President Obama's 2009 inaugural speech in which he eloquently celebrated settler colonialism and a, quote, land um, without people for a people without land, using the uh, Israeli description of their settler colonialism of Palestine that these people don't exist, Palestinians don't exist, that um, uh, US native people don't exist. Obama said, for us, they packed up their few worldly possessions, these are the settlers, and traveled across oceans in search of a new life. For us, they toiled in sweatshops and settled the West, endured the lash of the whip, that's how he includes Black people. Endured the lash of the whip and plowed the hard earth. President Obama affirmed another key element of U.S. national myth in an interview a few days later with Al Arabiya Television in Dubai. Asked if the United States could gain the trust of the Muslim world on the question of Palestine, he said, well, we sometimes make mistakes. We, we have not been perfect. But if you look at the track record, America was not born as a colonial power. So only by erasing the existence of indigenous nations could such a claim be made. Rather than ending the war in Afghanistan, Obama ramped it up, celebrating the US Special Forces 
2011 assassination of Obama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden, <laughs> considered by the US to be number one terrorist in the world responsible for the 9-11 attacks. The videotape of Obama and other officials watching the entire operation showed the joy on their faces when a voice proclaimed, Geronimo is dead. Never forget this. Neither the president nor his aides apologized for the choice of the code name when asked about it. Coming from arguably the most liberal US president ever and the first black president, Obama's reaffirmation of the country's official original story grounded me in my task. That task was to create a new narrative that promised liberation from a false national story. The only means for doing that was through the experience and narratives of the indigenous peoples who were targeted for elimination from the first landing of Anglo settlers on the continent in 1607. It also meant that my task had to be about war and violence, the endless wars to take and hold the land of the continent, followed by domination of the rest of the globe, settler colonialism and imperialism based on the Christian doctrine of discovery. This is a papal bull issued in 1493, granting all the Western hemisphere to the Spanish monarchy. That also was inscribed in US law in the 1820s. The doctrine of discovery of 1493, a papal bull of the Holy Roman Empire, marked the onset of the brutal colonization and looting of the non-European world for the next five centuries. Soon after the book was published, his um, life imitated art when Pope Francis announced in January 2015 that he would bestow sainthood on the Spanish colonizer Unipra Serra that um, that September, despite the three decades of protests con uh, conducted by descendants of the California indigenous survivors, Northern California indigenous survivors of Spanish genocide after Sarah was beatified in 1988. There had, th that had been the first step to sainthood, but was so controversial that it had been set aside by the Vatican. In the first canonization to take place in North America, an orgy of solemn celebration of colonialism and the genocide of California indigenous peoples, President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama, cabinet members and members of Congress attended the ceremony in the shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C., broadcast live on the most on most television and radio networks. 
This was a blatant confirmation of the continued authority of the doctrine of discovery. The Holy See choosing to locate the sainthood ceremony in the U.S. Capitol with a government endorsement presence as host confirmed as well that the United States was carrying on the imperialist Holy Roman Empire's doctrine of discovery. So that's um, to tell you what Columbus Day is too <laughs> about. Thanks for that. Yeah, I think, um, well, before I say more, I just uh, want to say to everyone who's watching, um, if you have questions, you can you can pose those in the chat. Um, I'm going to ask Roxanne one last question, and then we'll we'll pivot to Q and A. So so feel free. I want to welcome you to to ask your questions in in the chat. Um, and so the last question, I think, just to draw from this passage from the the new introduction, um, which seems very directly re relevant to to today and what we're all thinking about and trying to understand today in very specific ways. Um, the work of historical memory, um, the work of uh, historical scholarship um, that's demanded by uh, the contemporary demands of the of the contempt of the of the moment, you know, the moment that we're in. Um, I I wanted to add one more image of Columbus Day um, and then ask you this to respond to thinking about historical memory. Um, in 1987, I think it was three months after the dictator Duvalier fled from Haiti, uh, there was a, a mass mobilization in the capital in Port-au-Prince um, where popular organizations toppled a statue of Columbus and, and threw the statue into the sea. Um, and that this, of course, is a, a scene from uh, Raoul Peck's, uh, it's a scene that's included, the actual footage, in Raoul Peck's uh, Exterminate All the Brutes, um, uh, the, the series that on which the two of you collaborated. It's a really powerful moment, um, the kind of the beginning of a democratic process in Haiti, uh, the assertion of popular sovereignty of the Haitian people, of course, the first Black Republic, uh, the first successful anti-colonial revolution in the modern era. Um, and it's announced by tossing Columbus into the sea. Um, and so I, I wanted to ask you to speak about memory, um, collective memory, um, let's say academic memory, memory in its different forms as a terrain of, of popular and anti-racist and anti-colonial struggle. Yeah, memory is, is so important. Um, and once you... Um, once you begin uh, that process of, of remembering uh, the reality, you can't go back. Um, and it, it definitely eats at you, you know? So I think I understand why people um, are reluctant to know these things because not knowing I think for one thing, they feel helpless that they can do anything about it. But of course they can do things, you know, the, there was the French Revolution. I won't count the American Revolution because that was a reactionary thing, but plenty of the 1960s, you know, the 1930s, the 19 teens, the 
uh, the founding of the Socialist Party, the, the building of unions, uh, the um, the Civil War. You know, I would I would see, even though it was a, a state thing, um, it was a um, it was resistance. You know, it was the resistance of the um, of the enslaved people themselves that made Lincoln see the inevitability of slave revolts, which were happening uh, intensely more and more and more from the independence of the United States and plenty of them under the colonial era. And um, so this, this, this is in history, this is people waking up, they're then happy about it if they find a way uh, to express it. But I think they do, you know, and I, I really can understand this, that they, they do avoid it because they feel like there's nothing that can be done. And I think what fills those spaces then are, you know, entertainment and um, a lot of marijuana, <laughs> no. and a lot of alcohol uh, to kind of, you know, uh, just deaden um deaden the um uh caring uh and we see that you know uh, but there are also a lot of suicides how do we account for um well for one thing there are all those guns uh people used to try to kill themselves by hanging and often failed and then were happy for it or even jumping off the bridge and failed you know that they survived that God, I wish I hadn't done that. But with a uh, gun, you know, <laughs> that's it. But forty thousand a year, you know, that that's beyond any other statistic in the world by population of um, of uh, suicides, and twenty five thousand of those are by guns. Uh, so. Why are so many people, and these are often young people, young people, not say someone with cancer who wants to, you know, just not deal with it. I can that can be, but they're, you know, it's not really suicide. <laughs> it's really just deciding to to uh, uh, not deal with it, but that it's young people, um, and mainly young men, and a majority white, you know, why are, why are these people killing themselves? So I think um, we have to, we have to understand um, that there, in, in this erasure of the past, we really have no, no um, ability to see a future. And if we, because if we really got to know that past and see the necessity for change, I think it, and I think it does, you know, when we are able to, like in the 60s, my era of, um, uh, of uh, becoming uh, you know, a revolutionary. Um, 
I couldn't have done that alone. You know, it was the massive civil rights movement, people marching. Also, it was televised. But of course, these things happened before television as well, or even radio, um, that it's infectious. You know, it's infectious. Freedom is, is infectious. And it's a quick learning experience. You know, the, the, in that movement, I learned everything. You know, I, I came from rural Oklahoma. I didn't know anything. Everything I learned, I mean, the first lesson I had was strangely enough from a Palestinian at University of Oklahoma, my first year of university. And I knew nothing. And I learned about Palestine, which then opened the whole thing about colonialism. And, you know, then I could build upon something. But very few people in the United States get those opportunities without, you know, without a um, a movement that they can be welcomed into. There are movements now, but they're a little bit exclusive, and too many of them are nonprofit things, you know, and kind of ritualized and um, um, and and not, you know, not all that much. Uh, excitement and running down the streets and and all except black lives matter i mean there was that moment and people learned a lot during that time about racism and that just in that moment that would be hundreds of books you know that before you could get it you know really get that so i think the most important thing is that we take this knowledge and help make people free of um, the, um, you know, the blurriness that we live with, what's really going on, what can be done. Because nothing can be done unless it, it's done by, you know, masses of people. No individual or you could say, well, go join an organization, but I'm not sure what I would tell them to join. You know, what organization is that that should join? You know, and in fact, I think some people who, you know, in the liberal churches have more of a, you know, a, a sense of, of solidarity, but they're not, you know, they're not on the edge of, of these uh, some of them are, you know, I mean, I, I, half of my interviews uh, are, um, and I talk like this, are to Christian, <laughs> Christian uh, uh, organizations or churches. Well, thanks, Roxanne. I, I couldn't agree more that um, the best teacher, the best space of education, the best way to break our sense of isolation and the despair that can set in from that isolation is, is through collective struggle. Um, it's the best way to taste joy and, and know joy and experience, yeah. uh, real joy. Um, so we can we can maybe pivot now to the, the Q&A, um, question and answer. If you have questions for Roxanne, um, you can post those in the chat and I'll do uh, some curating and and um and and draw out some questions for Roxanne to respond to.
So we have a request to remind uh, everyone of the name of the film that you worked on with Raul Peck. That's an easy question to answer. <laughs> yeah, Exterminate All Brutes. It's based on a um, three books, uh, including uh, an Indigenous People's History of the United States. Uh, I worked with him on the script uh, as well. And the other two authors um, had passed away. So I was the only one left to, uh, you know, work with him on a daily basis, really, for a couple of years. So it was a, a wonderful experience. And the product uh, is, is absolutely amazing. There's also a um, published book called Exterminate All the Roots, if you want to read read the um, synopsis of it and then you know watch it and that film is available on max formerly known as HBO yeah it max. should still be available on max or some you know some uh that's who made it you know so yeah. it's somewhere in their archives <laughs> so we have a question from McAllister college um do you see the opioid epidemic as a response to settler colonialism and white supremacy? Well, there's there's many. Um, it, I think that that's certainly a part of it, um, but I think also it's just this. Um, it's so widespread now. You know, it's hard to pin down. Uh, it used to be kind of easier why, you know, why uh, a group of people are, are are doing this, but there's so much despair. And, um, you know, when we see the uh, fentanyl and the opioid in the Appalachia, you know, I, I mean, this is, uh, we think of it as urban things and all, but in Oklahoma, it's just, you know, it's everywhere. And I think it is um, it, it is despair, but a part of it is um, simply giving up on understanding what this country is about, what the future is, um, that people are just, uh, you know, really anesthetizing themselves, just, just uh, just dropping out and of course there's so many deaths from it because it's um well the the um uh the fentanyl was is marketed i i was horrified when i had um a minor surgery and they had to not put me under anesthetic but to, you know just a kind of woo woo thing and um, she had me take, uh, she's giving me a shot. And I said, well, what, what is it? And she said, fentanyl. I said, fentanyl, will I become addicted? To it? And she said, no, 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 no. You know, because, you know, it's a very good um, uh, for pain. And that's what it was made for. But people's pain goes farther than simply physical pain. You know, it's just a existential pain. And I think that's why, um, and settler colonialism, 
you know, it's an interesting insight because in a way it is, it's a, it's such a, um, um, you know, it, it, what it, what it manifests in the United States is real estate. You know, it's, um, it's, you have to have a piece of land uh, that was the obsession of settlers. Because in Europe, they, you know, they had kings and royalties and stuff, and people didn't have land. You know, they, 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 um, or say like the Irish who were colonized and their land taken by the means, the mean Scots, <laughs> my people, Scots, Irish. Um, and so this, this, this sort of um, wanting property, not being able to um, uh, to pay the mortgage, um, and I know in two thousand eight, I was shocked to learn that 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 Wall Street crash was based on these real estate deals. You know where they were, um, they were. Uh, selling and I I was one of the people who did this you know uh, got out of it because I couldn't really afford to buy anything and I, I had always been a renter but I decided to buy a, a, a condominium and um, and when I at a very low payment you know and they had these balloon payments and when I saw that balloon payment coming I sold it you know <laughs> <laughs> this is no, and fortunately before the uh, uh, the crash, but this was this was awful because people, you know, they they were getting these um, kind of fake mortgages, and it, those mortgages were being bundled and sold, um, and it it just you know it was, and it's really it's happening again at some level you know because this uh the whole point of wall street is you know is to is to pay um uh pay off their you know the investors and most of these investors are you know on the edge they're investing it's gambling you know <laughs> so there's really a lot of um fear of of a crash there's a fear of the interest rates now there's a fear of a recession and this almost all has to do with owning property i don't have to worry about that i don't have social security my retirement i rent a, i rent an apartment I, I you know i'm happy at a very low economic level of i have everything i need and recently got rid of my car, even because uh, I didn't want to drive anymore. So I, I think, you know, we're so uh, pumped up that we have to buy things and all the new things. And this is capitalism, you know, and we're the, uh, we're the ones that keep it going. And um, I, I think it's, uh, it's, you know, people who are evicted from their homes, and we see, you know, the people we see—they call them homeless people. The house, they're houseless people. They're people. They're generally people who have lost their homes, and they're there's, you know, or lost their jobs. 
and their homes. And um, they're not uh, just, I don't know, bums or, you know, just happy being on the streets or something. And there's not enough housing, you know, uh, for low-income people. So, yeah, uh, settler colonialism, it means property. You need to own property to be a true citizen or a human being. Thanks, Roxanne. So I think this will be the last round. We have a few, we have a few questions. Um, one, a pitch for the collective struggles that people can learn from um, the indigenous-led movements against the Enbridge pipelines in the upper Midwest uh, and the anti-pipeline movements. Um, a great uh, learning space to understand the role of oil in US imperialism. Thanks for that comment. Um, we have a question about land acknowledgments uh, that was asked. Um, how, oh, right. how can you think of, um, how do you conceive of land acknowledgments to have um, some material impact, material force, you know, um, towards um, enhancing indigenous self-determination? And then we had a question about the process uh, for the book. How did you do the research? What was your method? How did you decide how to organize the book and the major themes to draw out to the forefront? Yeah, well, that first question about um, the um, um, is it about the the um, uh, I've already forgotten. <laughs> the first the first one was a comment about the. Uh, the anti the indigenous led anti oh right movements. indigenous movement you know the indigenous movement i wrote an article uh you can google and find it on the first 10 years of the um um U united nations work um that began in um 1974 the year after uh the wounded knee uprising of 1973 everyone knows about alcatraz uh, people are out on alcatraz today with, with you know as cuz um thanksgiving uh 1969 a group of people group of indians uh went and claimed you know claimed the territory of alcatraz it was half a joke this was the 60s you know and everything was half satire and it was it was their you know their manifestos and everything were just wonderful and i have a lot about that in the book you know with a lot of the text from that time uh and it, it grew you know it became huge i mean jane fonda came back from france just to go uh to alcatraz and the coast guard stopped the boat you know anyone going visiting after a while and they got you know, harsher, but it was 18 months. And uh, people learned a lot from that uh, for, you know, um, in any movement, like I said before about myself, I learned about the world um, through, you know, not through uh, so much uh, books and all, but I, my reading of history is formed really by what I've learned in movements. It's a quick learning. And another thing we had in the 60s were teach-ins in universities and high schools. 
Um, those were amazing. They would go for weeks, you know, close, the whole classes would turn out, you know, that had the biggest auditorium in the university. I was at UCLA. And those teach-ins, I mean, different people would come for no pay at all, you know, famous activists and all, uh, to give talks. And of course, Noam Chomsky was on that, you know, on that track on others, um, wonderful people just teaching and teaching. And it was mostly about the Vietnam War. You know, this was a Vietnam War protest. And and then, of course, there was the um, the uh, 1969 uh, closing of the university, starting with Columbia occupations of universities. And I traveled across country uh, during that time. It was just such an amazing thing, you know, and and the you learn so fast in those circumstances of of oral. At least I do, because I, you know, I don't know. Growing up mainly with oral history, knowing history through stories, um, that uh, it's it it goes deeper somehow. You know, the the oral history than just reading reading books or reading newspapers or researching and so that's why it's really important to turn whatever you're doing you know find a way to also bring it to other people um this dave eggers this really wonderful novelist um and memoirist he with the money he got from being you know writing a bestseller um he has here in San Francisco um, set up uh, re, uh, writing classes free for young people, even for children. And it's 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 a you know kind of a small operation, but anyone could volunteer to go and teach any writer. And of course, we have a lot of writers here, and they go and, and teach. So I think these. It's, it's, you can create a movement, you know, just by starting something like that. One person just deciding, you know, they're going to do that. And um, so it, it doesn't take just, you know, we have these kind of routinized demonstrations now, which Black Lives Matter was not routinized, but it did become corporatized, unfortunately, toward the end, end of it because it was so popular, but it didn't start that way. It was very spontaneous. And uh, three young Black activists in Oakland um, really started it. And so, you know, then we had we had the um, uh, the Occupy movement in 2011. But these things kind of sizzle out and we have to find a way to, you know, keep of movements going and uh, picking up other people because you can walk into a movement um, and just start learning everything. And um, if it's not there, it's really hard, you know, to to learn things. And especially for people who are not connected, you know, with uh, not caught in college or anything. So I, I'm not sure I... I uh I kind of got off the um subject here, but um my writing and research 
Well, it's a little chaotic. Um, I mainly spent, you know, spent several years um, buying books to read. <laughs> but uh, um, in the end, you know, uh, that I either didn't read or they weren't helpful or, you know, that it was almost like an avoidance. I, I, I have this in common with other writers. I mean, there are some writers like, I don't know, um, uh, some writers who just write all the time very easily, but most writers I know, and I've been in a lot of writing groups, they, it's very, it's, it's the thing they love most doing. And it's so hard to get started. You do everything, you go bake, bake things, you know, you go clean the floors, you, you do anything to avoid it. And so it, it takes a long time, right? but all the time, at least for me, I'm thinking about it. It's, you know, it's on my mind all the time. And then somehow at that moment that I feel Yes, now I've got it. I sit down and write very quick. You know, I I ended up writing Indigenous people's history. I tell people it took eight years. And they say, you were writing for eight years for a 250-page book? And I said, well, no, I was not writing. <laughs> I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. uh, but when I start writing, I just, I can't stop. And my friend Ann Wiles said, I, I see here, um, she was amazed during the pandemic when I, uh, when I, in eight months, I wrote, uh, not a nation of immigrants and she would try to come over. I was writing from, uh, four 30 in the morning and then having, uh, lunch. And then until I collapsed at four, four 30 or five in the evening and, um, I wouldn't see anyone and people were worried about me. You know, you're all alone. You know, why aren't you uh, getting out a little bit? <laughs> I was just, I would, uh, but I had been putting that, I had to have that contract for three years and hadn't gotten to it yet. So the pandemic was, was for me a great productive uh, time. <laughs> No one to bother me, no one to deal with, nothing to deal with. Well, thanks, Roxanne. Um, once again, we're here celebrating the 10th anniversary edition of the Indigenous People's History of the United States, uh, which is out now and newly available from Beacon. And um, we're here. Uh, it, um, under the hosting of City Lights. So please support City Lights and support your local bookstore. Um, and, uh, and one other lesson is, is join a movement um, and, and uh, open your heart to learn. Thanks everyone for coming. And thank you, Roxanne. Thank you. Thank you, Manu. Thanks everyone. And thank you both for gracing our halls. Roxanne, congratulations on this beautiful new edition. Professor Vima Malaseri, I thank you for doing the honors tonight. Ever grateful to you. Uh, such a great, great interviewer. And thanks to all of you in the audience for joining us. As always, you help complete the circle. I'd like to remind everyone we have.
posted links with which you may purchase books. So please check out the chat. Better yet, if you're in the neighborhood, come on down, pay us a visit, browse our stacks. We're located in San Francisco's historic North Beach District. We're open seven days a week from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. I also want to point out that City Lights is celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. We'll be featuring a special calendar of events running through to the end of the year. So uh, please do check out our calendar for that. Today's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and keeping me employed, and also uh, through our public events, our publishing program, and all the educational outreach that we do, uh, really dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. That is what we're about. So take care, everyone. So long. We hope to see you all again very soon. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.